You're listening to the Driving Net Profit with Zero Emissions podcast, a monthly show with best practice net zero stories of leading businesses responding to climate change. You're with award-winning author and 100% Renewables co-CEO, Barbara Albert. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Driving Net Profit with Zero Emissions podcast. I'm Barbara Albert, co-CEO of 100% Renewables, a consultancy specializing in the development of net zero strategies. Today we're speaking with Sims Limited. Founded in 1917, Sims Limited is a global leader in metal recycling, circular solutions for technology, and an emerging leader in the municipal recycling and the renewable energy industries. Its 4,000 employees operate from more than 200 facilities across 15 countries. Sims Limited is driven by its purpose, which is to create a world without waste to preserve our planet. And it's this purpose that motivates Sims to constantly innovate and offer new solutions in the circular economy for consumers, businesses, governments and communities around the world. Joining me today is Blaise Porter. Blaze is the Group Director Sustainability and Corporate Responsibility at Sims Limited. She directs Sims Limited's long-term sustainability ambitions and goals and integrates sustainability throughout the company's divisions worldwide. Blaze also directs Sims Corporate Social Responsibility Framework. Prior to joining Sims in 2021, Blaze was the Director of Responsible Business at Fujitsu Australia and New Zealand. Blaze and I first met. She recently completed a Master's in Sustainability and Climate Policy from Curtin University. Hi Blaze and welcome to the Driving at Profit with Zero Emissions show. Good morning, thank you for having me Barbara, great to be with you. Such a pleasure. Reusing and recycling material is an important way to prevent emissions from entering the atmosphere and Sims Limited plays an important role in closing the loop and enabling a circular economy and thus minimizing greenhouse gas emissions. Sims whole business model is helping your customers increase the sustainability of their supply chains and reducing their carbon footprints. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about how Sims is enabling a circular economy and how it is helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Blaze, what can you tell us about Sims Limited? So Sims, as you say, is a circular economy business, so that's what we do. And I think um, yeah, it's so interesting because a lot of people don't realise that Sims is actually an Australian business, um, founded 104 years ago, actually in Newtown. Um, that was the very first scrap metal yard. And so um, scrap metal is still our core business. And that's really what most people associate with Sims. Um, so we take in end of life metal. So it might be, you know, a car, construction, demolition waste, appliances, um, and convert that into steel that's then ready to be used in a furnace um, and made into a new steel product. Um, and it, that's a global business. So, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Papua New Guinea, the UK um, and North America as well. We also operate another global business called Sims Lifecycle Services. Um, and this is all about repurposing end-of-life electronic devices, or we, we, we like to say it's recycling the cloud. Um, you know, so what happens to all that data centre equipment um, when it's at its end of life? And so Sims um, will take that and repurpose it. So it's higher up the value chain than recycling and right down to the chip level, trying to find another life for those devices. 
in their current form before they get to the recycling stream. Um, we're also investing in a super new exciting business which is called Sims Resource Renewal um, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that later but that's using advanced technology to deal with our own waste stream um, and create valuable products like hydrogen for society. So really interesting. We operate a curbside municipal recycling business in North America as well, um, Sims Municipal Recycling, and we kind of have a host of other non-operated businesses. So that's um, Alumisource, which is a really boutique um, aluminium recycling business, so really geared towards, you know, how do we make a smelter-ready product out of aluminium? Um, and also LMS, which is a landfill uh, gas energy business. <laughs> There's a whole host of things, Barbara, in the, in the Sims group, um, in the Sims family, but, you know, absolutely all oriented towards that goal um, of, you know, driving zero emissions through the circular economy. So metal recycling is still the biggest part of your business. What is the, the market for your end product? Are you sending all that metal over to China to be put in the electric arc furnaces? How does it work? What's the end market for, for that product? Yeah, so we sell worldwide. So China's um, certainly one of the top five um, geographies for Sims, but so is domestic. So, you know, in Australia is one of our top five markets. Um, supporting the local steel industry here, um, as is the US for our, our American business. Um, so definitely um, going into electric arc um, furnace, which can take up to 100% scrap metal charge, um, you know, used for making new steel. But we do also supply to um, blast oxygen furnaces as well, which is kind of your traditional um, steel making route. Um, because they can be charged with up to 30% scrap and that's a, a low carbon input. So that's quite, um, you know, an important pathway for the steel sector in terms of decarbonising the product. How can people envisage the whole life cycle of this? So you've got a scrap metal from what sorts of processes and then it arrives at your place. How does it go to your place? What happens then? How does this whole process work? So it's quite fascinating, really. So we will take, as you say, the scrap metal and that arrives from any number of destinations. So that might be you know, an actual end of life consumer product like a car or a fridge um, or something like that. Um, it could be construction demolition waste, it might be manufacturing scrap. So, you know, if you're making um, aluminium window frames, for instance, and you push a billet through a machine to get a formed metal product, you'll have a bit at the end. So we'll take that manufacturing scrap as well. Um, and we also just buy from members of the public. So, you know, it could be tradies. Um, if you've ever seen somebody on hard rubbish day go around and cut cables off of things or collect your hot water heater off the side of the curb, um, they're bringing it to us and we buy that metal. Um, so that's an input to our process. Um, at our yard, we will sort it and process it. So, you know, some things, you know, if we know what it is, <clears throat> you know, we'll just, um, you know, we can separate it, it there right at the source. Otherwise, for something like a car or a fridge, um, it will go into a shredder. Um, and that literally is kind of just a big shredder. It's big hammers um, that hammer it up into small pieces. Um, and then they're sorting within that process as well. So, you know, using kind of different air currents or scissors, for instance. And so we'll get out of that um, a metal product. So, you know, we get a, a steel product here that leaves us and it's good enough quality to go directly into a smelter. Um, you know, so straight from the truck into the furnace, if you like, um, ready to be made into new steel. 
Um, we also get two other streams. So one of them is called um, Zorba, which is an aluminium product. So if you think about a car, um, that's, you know, maybe the aluminium engine block or something like that, you know, other bits and pieces of aluminium that are in the product. So we can separate that out. Um, and then that will either go on to, you know, further processing or manufacturing as well. Um, our other big product is actually, um, it's a waste product currently. Um, and that's called Automotive Shredder Residue, or ASR for short. <laughs> it's a nice, simple uh, acronym. And that's everything that's not a metal, basically. So if you think about a car, that might be, you know, the bits of plastic from the dash or foam seats or rubber seals. Um, and as I said, at the moment, that product is going to landfill. Um, so that's what SIMS is investing in um, our new SRR technology um, to try and convert that and make sure we actually recover it and, you know, use those bits and pieces that currently aren't getting, you know, reused again um, to make a valuable product for society. <clears throat> so then as once it leaves us, um, all the products will then go on to be recycled. So that includes anything that we might remove um, from, from the product. So, you know, if we get a car or a refrigerator, we'll depollute them. So, you know, we're recycling any fridge gases that we can take, you know, oils, anything like that before they go into our process. Um, and then all the metal, yeah, it's ready to go and be made um, into new metal. And that can pretty much continue happening, um, you know, on a cycle. Most metals are really infinitely recyclable um, and they don't lose a lot of quality for going through that process. So they're ready to go and be made into steel for construction. That's fantastic because I can see how you're reducing the carbon footprint downstream by uh, allowing the recycling of metals to happen. Interesting point about the, the gases in the refrigerators, obviously use uh, refrigerant gases, with, which are quite potent greenhouse gases. And I was always wondering how this works, recovering those gases. So how does it actually work? The fridge arrives at your end and it's full of those harmful greenhouse gases. How do you get it out? How do you contain it? What happens and what happens once you have it? Do you, is it then, it, will it be reused or, or, yeah, or destroyed? So we, <clears throat> yeah, so we would engage a specialized technician to do those parts um, and to certify that it's been done as well. Um, and those gases um, can, in fact, be reused. So they're just kind of, yeah, captured out of that fridge or an air conditioning unit, um, what have you. Um, and they can go back and be recharged into another, you know, unit of that type that's using that same device. So, yeah, you absolutely can close that loop quite completely. Fantastic. So um, going back to another business unit you mentioned earlier with municipal recycling, can you tell us more about that and about your non-ferrous processing? Yeah, so our municipal recycling business operates um, in North America. And in fact, we do all the municipal recycling for the city of New York. So if you've ever, you know, been to New York. I started in New York. I did not know that. Yeah, I did. I started at Stern. So you tell me more about New York. I want to hear everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the curbside bin that goes out in New York City with all the aluminium cans and plastics and everything um, goes to um, a beautiful, actually, it sounds funny to say, but it's a beautiful facility um, there in Brooklyn that have, handles all the curbside waste. Um, and it has its own wind farm as well. <laughs> its own wind turbine and its own solar panels on the roof there and that goes through yeah it's it's an mrf you know so it's a material resources facility um and so that's yeah sourced and separated out so as part of that we'll recover 
you know, any metals that come with it. Um, and, you know, because of um, it seems that doing it, New York is one of the few cities where you can recycle a lot of metal products through your curbside recycling stream that you might not be able to do in other cities. Um, but also all your plastics and, you know, cardboard and things like that that you kind of, you know, conceptualise as being part of your normal curbside recycling. Um, and so that comes to us and we'll either find a market um, for all of those other commodities um, and then the metal will recycle, you know, both in our ferrous and, and non-ferrous recovery stream. But non-ferrous is quite an interesting one um, and we've done a lot of work, you know, with some of the OEMs around how do we recover um, things and so we've got a great um, you know project we've been doing for quite a long time with Nespresso around recovering the aluminium pods so if you've got a pod coffee maker at home um, you know those little pods are aluminium and you know so therefore they're recyclable but they are contaminated with the rest of the coffee grounds <laughs> that are still on them so it's you know how can we recover that material um, you know cleanse it of that contaminant being the coffee ground you know, obviously we don't want to discharge the coffee water anywhere else. So, yeah, it's been a great process of, you know, working with them um, <clears throat> and other OEMs. We actually do this in our metals business as well. We're working with car manufacturers to look at, you know, how do we design a car for its end of life? Um, <clears throat> you know, to, again, that whole circular economy principle is to say, well, yeah, can we design this better so that it's, you know, not just easier to recycle, but maybe it generates less waste during the process. It can be reused longer, or those components can be reused longer. So it's very much in the mindset of how we are interacting with, you know, both the up and down players in our value stream and all of our different business units, it seems. And I do want to discuss it in, in greater detail um, a bit later, but two immediate questions come to mind. Firstly, what makes New York City so special? Why can you do all this recycling in New York City, but not in others? You know, I think since has got a really great um, relationship with um, the municipality, with the city. Um, and, you know, that is a facility that New York City kind of being what it is, has got, you know, exposure to the full suite, you know, of urban waste. Um, you know, in a really compact area. Um, and so there's a great environment there for innovation, um, I think, Barbara. And New York City as well also has got some quite aggressive um, waste reduction goals, you know, and they're very much a city that, you know, is trying to, I think, really push the envelope in terms of achieving those zero waste goals and through that, you know, making a positive impact to climate also. Yeah, that just shows the importance of support that has to be made available on across all levels of government, from local to state uh, to federal, to enable companies like yours uh, to flourish and, and thrive and to enable everything that needs to be put in place to allow us to transition to net zero. So yeah, just to show that importance. And the second question I had was with Nespresso. So Nespresso pods are being recycled over in New York City. Is it possible to recycle them over here in Australia as well? Yes, it is. Um, and it does occur. You know, Sims Municipal Recycling Business only operates in New York, so I can't comment too much about what happens um, in Australia. But um, it is certainly something that, you know, when we were working with Nespresso in New York City, that it was very much about, 
you know, how can this methodology be deployed in other locations? Because, you know, obviously we've got two global companies, so we're not just solving a problem for one city, um, you know, or one resource recovering facility. You know, we're trying to solve a problem um, that then, yeah, can go and recover those materials in any location. And uh, you mentioned earlier LMS. I understand you've got a 50% stake in one of Australia's largest carbon abatement companies. What does LMS do? So LMS is a landfill gas business. And interestingly, so Sims has also expanded what we've learned from LMS and bringing some of the knowledge from LMS to a new business unit called Sims Energy, which is doing the same thing, generating um, renewable electricity from landfill gas, um, but this time in Florida. But LMS, as you say, is one of Australia's largest carbon abatement companies, generating energy from capturing landfill gas. So landfill, yeah, as it um, degrades, gives off methane gas, and that's quite really potent greenhouse gas, obviously, I think. Um, and so instead of just letting that go to emission um, or be flared, um, which reduces the amount of methane in the gas, you can capture that gas and use it to generate electricity. And so that's exactly what LMS is doing. Um, and it's great to, you know, see some of the really innovative things that LMS have done. So they, you know, working with their stakeholders to look at what's possible. So doing some things like running a little, little data centres, you know, right at the source there, um, running electric vehicle chargers purely off of, you know, landfill gas renewable electricity um, because it's right at the source. Um, so they're really trying to, I think, push the boundaries um, on what can be done, you know, with the landfill environment. Um, and not just the gas, I should say, because they're also working really hard on how do you install solar panels on landfill caps um, and, you know, using that, um, you know, land as it settles to generate electricity as well. Yeah, like the city of Newcastle has done at their uh, Summerhill facility. It's such a great idea because um, otherwise, what do you do with the land? <laughs> it's great to put solar panels on. And it's it's great that you have uh, landfill gas and they're using it for behind the meter electricity because you've got this constant supply and it's not dependent on the weather situation. Yeah, exactly. It's a really, you know, and particularly for those data center type, um, you know, uses that rely on that constant feed. Yeah, it's a really novel application, but it works really well for all the parties. Now, you mentioned earlier your ASR product. And yes. I want to talk more about that. What can you tell us? Because I, um, I saw in your materials that it, uh, it is being treated with plasma gasification. So that sounds exciting. What is it? How does it work? Yeah, this is one of the things I'm really excited about for Sims. So this is some new technology um, that we're bringing to Australia. So as I mentioned before, um, in our metal shredding operations, we generate this waste product, ASR. Um, and that is literally, you know, all the bits and pieces that aren't metal. So, you know, foam, plastic, dirt, cement. Um, so it's a really tricky product to work with in that it's dirty, um, you know, and it's not homogenous um, because it obviously depends on what's coming into the shredder that day what is the composition of the waste product that you get out of it. So it's quite a difficult waste commodity to really predict um, and it doesn't really lend itself to a lot of traditional resource recovery um, processes. And we generate a lot. We generate about a million tonnes a year worldwide um, of this waste product, which goes to landfill. And that does not at all sit well with us. Um, you know, our purpose is a world without waste to preserve the planet. So, you know, we've always had this 
you know, really, um, you know, keen need, you know, keen desire to do something of value with this ASR product. Um, and it's also, I think, really worth noting that commercially landfill costs globally are only going one way. <laughs> They're only increasing. And so, you know, if, if we've got something that doesn't align with our values and costs us a lot of money to not align with our values, naturally that's going to spur some different thinking. So what we're going to invest in is a technology called plasma gasification. So you get all your ASR and you expose it to super hot plasma. Um, but it's not incineration because there's no oxygen in this process. What it does is that just that super hot plasma makes all the material bonds in that product just literally gasify. That's the gasify part of the name. So it just breaks down all the material bonds and they go back to their um, elements and you can then compress and recover different parts of that gas. So from this, we're going to make valuable products. So we'll be making hydrogen. That's the primary product, um, which would be really exciting. So that'll be um, suitable for, you know, transport use, you know, for other industrial processes involving hydrogen. Um, we'll be able to make actually funnily enough CO2, um, which is also good for industrial use. And it's actually of sufficient quality to go into food and beverage applications. So making fizzy drinks, et cetera. Um, and we'll also be, ma um, be making a solid product, which is everything that's left, um, which we think will have applications kind of in, you know, as a construction aggregate substitute, um, which again, will help decarbonize other industries, because if you think about cement, um, which might use a lot of aggregate, you know, they are also looking for alternatives because it may be that there's not as much, you know, fly ash, for instance, from coal mines um, or from um, coal production as those facilities start to exit and, you know, coal power plants start to exit the grid. You know, we're not getting one waste product from that energy source. How can we instead use this waste product from a circular um, process so that it's not actually a waste. So um, that's, it is just super exciting. So we're constructing the first demonstration plant um, of this technology here in Australia. Um, it's going to be in Queensland. So we're working through that process and that should be operational, you know, that demonstration plant within the year, Barbara. So um, we're really excited about the potential that this has to, you know, obviously deal with the waste stream but deal with it in such a way we're actually creating quite a high value product um, that also then decarbonizes operations further downstream. And Blaise, you mentioned earlier that Siemens is a global leader in circular cloud solutions and enterprise data storage is expected to grow exponentially over the next years. This is something I also discussed with Craig Scroggy, CEO and Managing Director of uh, NextDC in episode three. It's Great to see that cloud companies like Microsoft and Google and XTC have ambitious targets. So for instance, Microsoft is known for its carbon negative by 2030 goal, and Google has been carbon neutral since 2007. What happens to all the data center equipment when it gets decommissioned? How are you helping these companies reduce their waste? Yeah, it's, you know, and it's such an um, interesting question, I think, that doesn't get a lot of play because you know, and, and obviously from in my previous career data centres, that was something near and dear to my heart is, you know, very much and rightly so, there's a focus on electricity consumption because data centres are obviously significant energy users. Um, but the largest waste stream, you know, by volume certainly, you know, that comes out of these sorts of facilities is electronics. 
Um, and they can turn over really fast. So these things can have, you know, quite a fast life cycle of less than five years before they're getting turned out again. So that's what um, Sims Life Cycle Services or SLS is really all about. So they've got a business model that really focuses at the very high end um, of the value chain. And increasingly, you know, that's what our customers want. Then, you know, they're also aiming higher than just recycling is to say, okay, we're not here to recover, you know, metals and plastics. What we want is to actually, yeah, achieve those, you know, reuse and redeployment phases in the life cycle. So that's what Sims does. So if you have a cloud asset, so it might be, you know, a server, laptop, you know, anything really, um, that comes to us, um, you know, we'll wipe all the data, um, you know, clean it up, replace any missing parts, etc. Um, might even upgrade it. Um, and then that will be either redeployed back to the customer for their use um, or it'll be resold on to have, you know, another years of life, you know, as a laptop or, you know, as a server market or something like that. Um, if it can't just be redeployed, um, then we'll look to kind of parts harvest, right? So we'll take out anything from, you know, memory chips, hard drives, um, you know, graphics cards, you know, bits and pieces. And that is really all the way down to the chip level. So that, um, you know, when we had the, certainly that first big flush of the pandemic and that caused a global chip shortage because all the chip manufacturing um, factories shut down. Um, and like many supply chains, they were really operating on a just-in-time model. So there was no, you know, big resource of, you know, chips that were being drawn on. And the only ones that you could find were the chips that were already in things, you know. And so our SLS business really scaled up and they were recovering hundreds of thousands of chips um, out of, you know, just bits and pieces of equipment that were then going back to, re to manufacturers to be redeployed. So maybe not in their original configuration, you know, maybe there needed to be some innovation done in terms of saying, okay, we've got some different ones and different models, you know, that's not, didn't necessarily fit neatly into a production process where you go, okay, like bang, bang, bang. You know, but that bringing that innovation to the fore um, to be able to deal with that, you know, particular challenge. And now that's become, you know, a core part of what we're offering, um, you know, and our customers are really, taking a lot of moves into that direction because, you know, dealing with that particular crisis has actually unlocked, you know, a whole new range of business models um, for both us and for our customers that says, okay, well, actually, yeah, we can reuse this, you know, with a, with a bit of thought, you know, with some innovative approach, we can actually create something here that's of quite high value um, from what we already had. Um, and obviously, you know, all of those things have a lot of embodied emissions in them. You know, that's, you know, all that raw material had to be mined, you know, had to be refined, had to be, you know, manufactured, transported all the steps of the way. So why wouldn't you just do that, you know, and build that resilience and that flexibility into your whole business model um, while you were delivering that environmental outcome? And how does it actually work? How can we envisage this process? So there's a whole, like I envisage motherboards, chips, cables, all this stuff going to your facilities. How do you actually take it apart? How, how do you separate that? How does it work? It sounds like I can only picture a really labor intensive process. So how does, how, how does it really work? It is, there is a fair amount of spe um, specialized labor in that, you know, absolutely. So, you know, there'll be people having a look at it 
Um, and that can literally mean opening up the device, you know, cleaning it out, having a look, um, testing, you know, various components, the whole device at the end, you know, to make sure that it has worked. So 100%, you know, we have a lot of skilled people kind of working hard, um, you know, to make that happen and provide our customers with the traceability that they expect, you know, along every stage of that journey, right? So that when something comes in, we can say, okay, you know, that got redeployed, you know, here's the serial number, here's the certificate that shows that that hard drive is wiped, you know, here's that traceability um, that they need, you know, not only for environmental purposes, but obviously because of, you know, data protection, you know, um, you know for their inventory control, et cetera. Um, and that all gets logged every stage of the way through its journey. So when a device um, leaves us, as I said, it might go back to their customer, um, ready to go back into a different data centre application, you know, ready to go back, you know, into their workforce um, or ready to go back to a community partner, for instance, that might, you know, need those devices. Or it goes just on to be sold. So you might just be buying, you know, a second-hand laptop because it's great. It's going to do whatever it is that you need it to do. It doesn't have that, you know, environmental burden and it's, you know, a lot more reasonably priced proposition for you um, you know, in order to be able to access, you know, a high-quality device that still has a warranty, um, you know, and is still loaded up with authorised operating systems, et cetera. So it's still a really high-value product that you're getting. And looking at the at the waste management hierarchy, it's so much better to repurpose uh, something rather than moving further down the waste management hierarchy. So in materials, you mentioned repurposed units with embodied carbon and you also mentioned recycled units with avoided carbon what do you actually mean by that yeah good question so you know as i said there so when we make something you know anything um all the carbon involved you know in that um, production of that asset right back through to the cradle of the earth and the extraction of the raw materials um that's an embodied emission, right? So that becomes kind of inherent in, you know, your tablet, your phone, your server blade, whatever it is. Um, and it's all the carbon, you know, that get into being made that. So if we can keep that device, whatever it is, in circulation for as long as possible, um, that means, you know, that we're keeping that embodied carbon locked away, as it were, um, in that product. And we're avoiding kind of the manufacture of anything else. With recycling, when we talk about avoided emissions, what we mean there is the emissions avoided from having to do um, the extraction and the refining of those raw materials. So whether it be plastic or a metal or what have you. Um, and as you say, it's you know, still a great outcome, you know, obviously compared to landfill or something just, you know, sitting in the back of a supply closet somewhere. Um, but certainly, you know, that repurposing and redeploying outcome is much, much um, you know, higher up on the value chain. Um, again, for everybody, you know, it's much higher value service for us to deliver commercially. It's much more useful to customers. It's much more useful um, to their end, you know, consumer of the product. Um, and it's a much better outcome for the environment too. The win-win situation. But to actually capture the carbon impact of the repurposing and the recycling, and if so, how do you measure that? We do. So we've actually, um, in our SLS business, worked with um, some universities and some consultants to come up with a calculator to help articulate this for our customers. 
um, so that they can actually really see that because, you know, I think for some devices you might say, okay, like here's my one kilo tablet and that could have seven or eight kilos of embodied carbon that comes along with it in that life cycle process. So, you know, when you kind of conceptualise it like that, um, it can be such a surprise to people. So we really want to help people um, understand that because it also does make a difference in terms of saying, oh, well, you know, I'm just recycling, I'm doing the right thing, um, is to say, well, actually, you know, there's this higher value outcome that could be obtained um, through redeploying those products. So since is at the forefront of the circular economy and is certainly driving carbon reduction for your customers, Blaze, what strategic opportunities do you see in the marketplace? Well, I think it's such an exciting time to be at Sims because, you know, obviously it's really critical to, you know, decarbonising society. So, um, you know, one of the statistics that I always like to quote is from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, so the Global Circular Economy Leader. Um, and they did a great piece of work that basically said, okay, if we electrified everything, um, yeah, and ran that off renewable energy with best-in-class energy efficiency, that would solve about 55% of the problem. So it would get us about halfway there, um, you know, to achieving the UN climate change targets. And the other 45% is in all of our manufacturing systems, basically. <laughs> and it's in all the things that we buy and the food that we eat and, um, you know, it's embodied in all of those other things. Um, and two of the most critical sectors to decarbonise are aluminium and steel. Um, and I think steel is probably the one that's, you know, got a lot of people really excited at the moment. Um, and how we talk about, you know, kind of in inverted commas, green steel or, or low carbon steel, because um, there's not an accepted definition for what constitutes that, but we're all trying to find it. But the, the most exciting opportunity, I think, for Sims around, you know, that low carbon steel is that scrap metal and incorporating more scrap metal um, and in particular using scrap metal um, in an electric arc furnace, as we talked about earlier, is kind of the way we know how to do lower carbon steel making at commercial scale. Because we don't yet know how to get a lot of hydrogen cost effectively at scale. We don't know how to do carbon capture and storage effectively at scale. Um, but scrap, um, <clears throat> you know, is, an, is a, a product entry that can deliver low carbon steel um, as I said, that's available now. And, you know, it's generating the circular economy as well. <laughs> you know, it's recycling. It's keeping resources in use for as long as possible. And it kind of almost sounds a bit too good to be true. So, <laughs> you know, there's a wonderful opportunity, I think, um, for Sims, really at the heart of decarbonising what is otherwise, you know, a very tough to obey but yet super critical sector um, to decarbonise steel. Um, and steel certainly not going anywhere and steel, like other metals, like aluminium and copper that we also handle, is actually required to decarbonise. Like we need steel to build mass transit. We need steel to build, you know, other forms of low emissions, um, you know, power generation. We need all the aluminium to go around the edges of the solar panels that are behind you on the screen. But, right, you know, we, we, <laughs> we need, when we say electrify everything, we need all those microchips that are made out of copper and gold. <laughs> everything else um you know so there's just you know looking down the horizon that demand for global high quality metal is only going to rise um you know and we're certainly seeing that huge you know, i think we're really start to seeing that pull through demand 
um, you know, particularly in the built environment, I think, you know, that is a sector that's really got some very advanced players in terms of saying, you know, where are your low carbon EPDs, you know, show me, or, you know, setting some targets around, um, you know, incorporation of circularity, um, you know, in their own, you know, built environment and what's coming into the buildings, you know. And so that's um, hugely encouraging to me um, because as, as we all know, you know, these things are systems and to get system change, you need every part of the system to move. So it's it's awesome to see that that demand, um, you know, for low carbon product, you know, is coming through from a lot of different points. And so there's, as I said, there's a great opportunity for Sims, you know, for doing what, what we do. Um, and that's why we're also investing, you know, just even in, in our core metals business in terms of saying, well, how can we get a better quality product, right? So how do we actually do what it is that we're doing much better so that we're getting a higher quality output, you know, that's then less carbon intensive to go into a smelter and we'll give you a higher quality steel or aluminium product or, or whatever it is at the end of the day. Um, and so a loom resource is quite um, an important strategic acquisition for us in, in that respect because what that enables us to do is to generate, you know, from, from the yard, a smelter-ready product um, that can go straight in and to be remade into new aluminium. Um, and that uses about 95% less energy, right, to remelt aluminium than it does to make it from what? Um, so it's a critical, critical metal um, to get right. And, in, in fact, if you look at a building, you know, aluminium is much more an emissions-intensive component of that building that steel is, right? Steel gets a lot of focus and aluminium is kind of there off to the side. Um, yeah, but at the moment, you know, that's essentially unique, right? You know, there's not a lot of options other than, you know, kind of resorting through processes and, you know, et cetera, which then all also take, you know, a lot of various emissions or they might take water or chemicals or whatever. Um, and so there's a fantastic, I think, opportunity for us to deliver that really high quality product to go back into creating some of these essential technologies um, that we do need, you know, that we absolutely need. Um, and I think that's the case really for SRR as well, you know. So we've talked about, um, you know, the plasma gasification process and there's, you know, there's a fantastic opportunity for us, you know, to not only close our own loops, um, but potentially to be able to, you know, expand that solution, um, you know, and be able, as I say, to generate really high quality products um, from materials that would otherwise just go straight to landfill. These are great insights. And I just want to bring out this amazing statistic that you brought up. Did you really say that by using recycled aluminium, you're saving 95% of the carbon footprint? Yep. That's an extraordinary statistic from memory, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you probably need about one kilowatt hour to produce an aluminium can, correct? Yeah, I'm not sure about per can, but um, aluminium is extraordinary electricity um, intensive manufacturing process to do. You know, aluminium refineries are some of the largest energy users on the grid, right? you know, and they kind of come up from time to time in that perspective. and. You know, great to see, um, you know, for instance, that's a smelter at Tamago has committed to being 100% renewable by 2030. And um, obviously that got a lot of attention because of just the sheer size um, of the demand 
that is required to make this product. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, International Aluminium had, you know, some interesting LCA work that they did. Um, and so I think for new aluminium, you know, from, from virgin materials, it's about 16 tonnes um, of carbon dioxide equivalent um, per tonne of product. Um, but the process emissions from scrap to make that, depending on the source of scrap, are kind of from 0.3 to 0.6 of a tonne. So you can see there, like, just a huge reduction um, in carbon intensity by able to re reuse that material. Absolutely extraordinary. And the more companies will pay attention to their supply chains and the products they buy and making sure that the embodied carbon decreases, the more your services will be in demand. So that's really great. So I want to turn our focus inwards to your own climate action targets. Mm. In your recent investor presentation, you announced new much more ambitious targets, such as, for instance, bringing your carbon neutral target forward by 12 years. Can you tell us more about your current targets, please? Yeah, it was super exciting to be able to, to announce that um, and to really, you know, I think match the size of our, our targets with the ambition that we have, um, you know, and the leadership that we're showing in the circular economy. So, um, as you mentioned, we've brought forward our climate neutral position from 2042 to 2030. And that's for the whole group. Um, and so that's really about, you know, saying, okay, well, this is what the science is telling us, right? You know, we, this is a critical decade for action and that's not just words. So we need to, you know, make sure we get as much of our ambition, um, you know, to drive reductions across the business by 2030. Um, we also announced um, some other new targets at that time and that were that our SLS business um, it's going to be even more forward. So they're going to be carbon neutral by 2025. Um, and, you know, you mentioned earlier some of those, you know, aggressive commitments that we see in the sector from the likes of Microsoft and Google. You know, so we really want our ambition, you know, to match customers' ambition, you know, and to match the ambition of the sector that that business operates in. So, you know, you know three years to, um, you know, really make as much impact as we can. Um, and then achieve carbon neutrality by 2025. Um, also by 2025, um, we've committed to 100% renewable electricity um, across all of our operations. Um, and that's certainly one of our strategic pathways in terms of you know, decarbonising our business um, and achieving our overall goals. And we've left our net zero commitment at 2050. Um, because we've made kind of that um, you know, distinguishment there, right? That says, okay you know, at 2030, there's going to be offsets involved. You know, we know that we won't be able to do everything that we need to be able to do in the next eight years. And we know that we won't have all the technology ready there. You know, we use a lot of heavy equipment and a lot of heavy vehicles and we just don't see, um, you know, they're not available now, which means we can't purchase them now, which means we certainly won't have them by 2030. Um, you know, so we've... But we still will take, um, you know, responsibility for those emissions that we have and there'll be some offsets involved at 2030. By 2050, with the net zero position, you know, what we're certainly expecting is that, you know, that will only be a really tiny proportion, just the residual proportion um, that we'll be having to treat with an offset. 
And how did you go about setting those targets internally? What kind of uh, stakeholder engagement process did you have to go through? How did this work? Well, look, I, when I arrived at things with that 2042 position, you know, for, for me that always, you know, and very quickly I think, you know, really um, felt like that as an, that wasn't actually where our values were um, and that our values were um, much more ambitious um, and that particularly we saw ourselves, you know, as, a, as around that discussion to decarbonising steel as a much more, um, you know, important part of the solution. So in terms of talking to people about, hey, you know, like <laughs> where, where our values at, where our ambitions at, um, you know, I think there was a lot of alignment um, around that and around obviously acknowledging um, the science of the importance of doing you know, as, as much as we can, um, you know, within this critical decade. So, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, Barbara, it was, it was in fact, you know, really just open and honest discussion in terms of saying, okay, well, you know, what could this look like? You know, what do we think is likely? Um, you know, what would this look like in terms of compact cost impacts and let's, let's model that out. Um, and so one of the things that we've also done is put in an internal carbon price. Um, so we'd be using that in modelling, you know, all our CapEx decisions, using that in strategy, using that to understand kind of the impacts of various different decisions on, you know, certainly what our targets will, will, uh, will look like in terms of how close we're able to get to them, um, you know, and the financial return um, on that as well. And, look, again, that was a really heartening um, process to go through because, you know, Sims has a really, you know, really open and very curious culture. And, you know, so once we kind of got in, got in there, you know, I was talking to the CFOs, um, each of those different businesses has their own CFO about, you know, the various, um, you know, ways that we could look at carbon pricing. You know, I think everyone was like, ah, okay. You know, they really got it. And they saw immediately how that process could help us you know, achieve our goals and how it could, you know, what their responsibility was in terms of, you know, making that happen and the contribution that they could make um, towards delivering this critical outcome for Sims. And look, as I said, you know, earlier, our purpose is to deliver a world without waste, to preserve the planet. And people do really think about that purpose and they feel super duper connected to it. Um, and so this was just a new way of being able to help people connect to that purpose um, and try and articulate the change um, <clears throat> because we do make um, you know a lot of um, asset decisions that are long-lived assets you know if we go out today and buy a big you know material handler and um, you know, if, if you're not familiar with what a material handler is if you're listening it's like a big front-end loader but with a claw handle on it and so that will pick up all the scrap and put it you know into a, into the pile or into the shredder and if we buy one today, they will last beyond 2030, for sure, right? You know, they're long-lived pieces of capital equipment. Um, and so we have to be able to articulate that impact and articulate the cost because, you know, if we buy a diesel one today, we're going to be offsetting that in 2030. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so it was a really important process to kind of go through at the same time of articulating the targets is articulating some of these pathways. At what price level did you set the carbon price? So we've set the carbon price on a scale, um, going up to 100 Australian dollars a tonne by 2030. So it's quite a high price. 
Um, but I think if we kind of look around us and some of the other pricing, it's certainly not, um, you know, unbelievable that, you know, a carbon price would be $100 a tonne by 2030. Um, and I think, you know, so we looked around when we set that price, we looked at, you know, what were some of our, um, you know, other ASX materials business setting their carbon price at. You know, we looked at obviously, you know, what a carbon price was trading today and what are they predicted to trade at. Um, so look at some of the really, you know, good high quality modelling that is out there um, and looked at also, okay, well, what does the research tell us um, that a carbon price would be required in order to actually, you know, decarbonise society and really drive that movement um, and to pick, you know, to pick a price that, obviously didn't um, encourage a perverse outcome, you know, because we, we're a business, we need to remain competitive. Um, but that was also, you know, going to generate the action that we wanted it to. And so I think that that um, $100 uh, per tonne price, um, you know, will certainly do that for us. Will this uh, be a real price implemented across the business units or more like a shadow price? Not at present. So we've modelled it as a shadow price. Um, to understand the impact there. But I think, you know, the the good, the nice thing about that instrument is that it is quite flexible um, and that, you know, we can review it also, you know, if it's not having the outcome that we expect or if, you know, we wanted to tie that to, um, you know, a decarbonisation fund or something like that, as, you know, Microsoft does, for instance, um, you know, then there's certainly all those pathways open. So SIMS was one of the first organisations to report to the CDP. What does your carbon footprint actually look like? I envisage it must be heavily energy intensive with everything that's going on. So what kind of emission sources do you have? Yeah, so our emissions inventory is quite interesting. So, um, and our baseline year is FY20. So that's what we're targeting all of our emissions reductions targets against. Um, and it is about 50-50 between electricity um, and diesel is really the other biggest source. Um, and we do have... A minority of emissions for other sources, including natural gas, um, and including um, we do a lot of like oxy cutting. So for larger pieces of scrap, they'll have to be cut um, before they can be processed. So you know all the emissions from like people with an oxy torch or something like that is also a part of our inventory. Um, and so that was really why we kind of looked at renewable electricity as being such a key pillar to achieve early. So. Number one, it's kind of half of our emissions profile um, just through the use of electricity. Um, but number two, as we look to displace diesel in the business, um, obviously a lot of that will go towards electrification of equipment. Um, and so in order to get the, the full benefit of the, that emission saving, you know, we really want to be rolling you know, those assets off onto renewable electricity as early as we can in their life cycle. Um, so that was really key. Um, you know, again, that was why it was quite important to do early. And the diesels from um, our road fleet, as you may imagine, so we operate a lot of our own trucks and they'll go out and pick up our own skips and bins and <laughs> deliver, um, you know, containers to ports and things like that. Um, and also we have quite a lot of mobile plant um, within the yard. So we have about 150 premises globally. Um, and so they're full of material hammers and front-end loaders and forklifts and things like that. Um, and so, you know, as I said, really looking at electrification, um, but also what we might able to be do with fuel substitution. So, 
you know, for instance, in Queensland, um, we've just concluded a really small trial um, around direct hydrogen injection. So it's in injecting hydrogen into the diesel engine um, and look at that, give a, a fuel saving, um, which of course would be an emission saving as well. And what about scope three emissions? Uh, say for instance, with your contractors or in your value chain, have you started to look into those as well? Yeah, we have. So in the next couple of months, we'll actually be um, publishing our very first scope three inventory. Um, so I can't, um, you know, kind of say too many details about it because we haven't published it yet. But I, th I think, Barbara, you know, like many businesses, <laughs> it's a lot bigger than our scope one and two um, inventory. Um, and absolutely, it's really dominated by two things. Um, the single largest source is really from the processing of our product. So when we sell that processed, you know, scrap steel or aluminium, it's going into a smelter. Um, and even if that is an electric arc furnace, that is still quite an emissions intensive process to do. So there's still quite a lot of emissions attached to that. And that is the single largest part um, of our inventory. And the second one is marine shipping. Again, probably, you know, not a huge surprise, but SIMS does quite a lot of shipping. Um, in fact, I think on the US East Coast, we're one of the largest uh, stevedoring operations. Um, <clears throat> and so it's the fuel, um, you know, from the marine shipping of our product. Um, we'll be publishing some more information about um, that soon. Um, you know, but we're already engaging with our customers to understand, you know, what their priorities are, what their pathways are. Um, again, obviously, particularly for steel, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty um, around some of these various technologies that they could adopt. Um, so it's important for us to do that engagement. Definitely. So, Blaise, you mentioned a couple of your emissions reduction opportunities uh, being mostly in the electrification of equipment and then switching over to renewable energy power purchasing. But looking at your metal shredder operations specifically, this would be perfectly aligned with implementing solar PV because you can only operate between morning and afternoon and you have to stop uh, due to noise. Have you evaluated your, your solar potential for these? Yeah, that is absolutely something that we're looking at as well. So um, we have a number of sites that already have an on-site um, installation, both solar and wind, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but solar certainly would suit us quite well. And so we will, you know, hopefully in the next time we talk, um, have a few more installations up there on the roofs. Um, like many businesses, I think it's only quite a small proportion of where we could hope to get to. But it is quite useful because of that demand curve, as you mentioned. Um, and especially as we start to electrify more in terms of helping us manage that demand um, and pushing down the overall curve. And so we are also looking at you know, for some sites, what would a combination of battery um, and on-site renewables look like and trying to model what the impact of that would be. So it's quite exciting to see, you know, obviously all of these technologies become more widespread and I think particularly regards to batteries as, you know, looking at them now becoming much more commercially attractive, um, you know, and to think about what that means for us and in the sense of our, you know, really changing energy mix.
we've talked about solar PV, etc. And we talked also about renewable energy purchasing in one of your targets uh, to 2025 relates to the fact that you want to make uh, your sites 100% renewables. Because you operate globally, I can only imagine the com complexity of this task across the different jurisdictions. How easy or how hard is it going to be to switch to 100% renewables? Yes. <laughs> it will be. So, indeed. Um, so, I think we've already gone um, some part of the way. So, really largely through matching through um, renewable energy certificates. Um, and our UK operation, for instance, um, has achieved that status and, um, and through that mechanism. Um, and it works quite well in terms of, the, you know, obviously the flexibility and the ease of implementation for us. So we are looking at, you know, what some longer term purchasing options um, might look like for SIMS, because particularly where we have the demand to support it, um, you know, I, th I think that that would be a fantastic option for us, you know, when combined with other methods and when combined with, you know, on solar installation as well. Um, we do have some geographies where it's going to be tricky. Um, so, you know, we do operate in some countries like Papua New Guinea, for instance, um, where there is not kind of a, a national rec scheme um, and where, you know, due to um, the weather, you know, most of our facilities are kind of on the uh, a side of the island where there's more cloud and, you know, there's more rain. Um, we are certainly not going to be able to, you know, self-generate to any significant extent. So we do, um, you know, I do anticipate that there will be some geographies that will cover with offsets. Um, but I think, you know, of, in, in any in any case, we will do what we can um, to generate up first, and then we'll make sure that those offsets of, you know, a really genuine high quality standard um, where we have to go down that direction. And I want to turn our attention outward again. So uh, having had that focus inwards with your uh, targets, your carbon footprint and your emissions reduction opportunities, I want to now focus more on your customers. Because you're such a large enabler of the circular economy, do you then see it as part of your work to educate and engage with your upstream and downstream stakeholders to ensure that your circular model is embraced? Yeah, absolutely. And that takes all sorts of um, different forms. Um, you know, of, of course, most people kind of engage with their customers around what their strategy is. Um, but because this is driving toward, you know, such a key outcome for society in terms of decarbonisation, it takes on a whole new level of, of importance in terms of understanding um, what these plans are because of, they're so significant um, in terms of, you know, they will take many decades to kind of come and, and come to fruition. And um, I think I did see a stat recently where in the decade to 2030, there's something like 60% of the global um, blast furnace uh, fleet um, that's kind of coming to the towards the end of its planned life. So we know that there'll be a lot of um, you know people making strategic decisions um, over the next you know ten to fifteen years, which are really going to be integral to their pathway. I think you know it's also very much as I mentioned earlier about how do we engage you know with our customers and with other stakeholders at the start, um, and really looking about that design phase that says, you know, we've worked with a couple of vehicle OEMs now um, to say, okay, we'll do a time and motion study on your car. You know, <clears throat> how long does it take to 
strip out? How easy or hard was it? You know, how recyclable are these components? Could they be reused? Are, um, you know, are they accessible? I mean, even in an electronic waste um, point of view, that's probably been going on, you know, for a longer time. Um, you know, and we'll still work with um, our customers there to say, okay, well, this battery has been, you know, fused into place, you know, that obviously impedes the recyclability because it's got to be um, manually removed and it's got to be manually removed by somebody with silicon or wooden tools because it's a spark risk, you know, when, they, when they're trying to do that. So um, I, I think it's absolutely critical to the way that the circular economy works is that you do have to lift all parts of that cycle, you know, is, is to say, um, you know, we have to be, you know, designing you know, for not just end of life, but to delay end of life as, as long as we can. And we have to be looking at the other end in terms of the manufacturing streams to say, how do we incorporate, you know, more recycled um, contents and not just material, but components, you know, whole components um, into the design of products that people can use and use for a long time. And do you think that the technologies needed uh, exist already or will innovation play a key role moving forward? What is happening in the innovation space to support the circular economy model for your products? I think there's a huge amount of innovation happening. Um, and it's such an interesting, I mean, you know, we you know, we live in interesting times, right? And I think we're all aware of that. But, you know, we're also looking at a time when the products themselves are changing, right? So as we move away from, internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, for instance, what that means is that the end of life stream will be quite different. And so we're, we're trying to also solve, you know, different problems at different times. Um, and I think, again, like our, you know, I'm talking again about our Lumisource business and that innovation in terms of using combinations of different sensors, you know, controlling what goes into the process, et cetera, to actually get out at the end a product that doesn't require any you know, further processing to go back into a smelter and make a low carbon product, um, you know, is the sorts of innovation that's really key for Sims is we're actually, you know, maximising the quality of our output, which is maximising the quality of somebody else's input, obviously, um, to get a product that's not just about saying, okay, yeah, this is good quality, but this is low carbon, right? This is really... Um, you know, will reduce the carbon footprint um, of the sold product, you know, in whatever form it's going to go into. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, we're really seeing, you know, that innovation um, in terms of a technology, but I think it's also, you know, innovation just in terms of how people are thinking about these issues um, and how people are shaping market demand, um, you know, and, and again, looking at, aluminium um hydro for instance which is one of the big um aluminium kind of billet and you know roll product manufacturers um have a product now hydro circal which they are specifically making from post-consumer recovered aluminium so you know they're specifically making that from your old fly screen or <laughs> engine blocks or um you know sources like that um for use into new products and so I think that just you know the the fact that there's innovation in terms of shaping the market demand um, responding to the market demand at all elements of the cycle um, is absolutely key you know it's 
technology in terms of how we process it absolutely plays a role. Um, you know, but that demand, you know, from buyers, from, you know, consumers and all elements um, in terms of saying this is what we want, you know, and we want you to, we want to know, we want to prove it, you know, through that traceability, I think is just so exciting. And generally speaking, in terms of the overarching goal for us, for everyone really, to improve our landfill diversion rates, what can we do as individuals, as businesses, and what can governments do to enable a circular economy and to divert waste away from the landfill? You know, there's lots of ways. I think as individuals, um, you know, certainly, you know, again, it's, a, I guess, the basic precepts in some ways of the circular economy, isn't it? So we should be really conscious about what it is that we're buying, you know, what are we bringing in to our homes? Is it something that we really need? You know, is, there, is it something that's of high quality that we can use again and again? Um, you know, is it something that's in metal packaging, for instance, that you could be reused or easily recycled, or is it in a single-use plastic? So that just decision right at the start um, is absolutely core to getting the outcomes right at the end. And I think, you know, that whole, um, you know, education about what's the, you know, the right bin or, you know, the best, you know, I take myself, I sit back to the shop, et cetera, you know, so all those bits and pieces that, um, we're all doing to play a part. Um, I think also it's that, um, you know, when we talk about what we buy is, you know, for business, for government, how do we buy a product, um, you know, that is from the circular economy, right? How do we buy a product that is made from recycled content? And let's preference that. Um, and I think we're starting to see real leadership in that space. You know, I mentioned earlier the built environment, you know, as a consumer, um, Lendlease, for instance, you know, has set an extraordinarily aggressive net zero target um, for all their buildings by 2040. So, you know, that's going to drive disclosure through the forms of, you know, EPD, environmental product declaration. Um, <clears throat> you know, that will drive the various manufacturing of the various components to go back to their supply chain and say, oh, you know, what's going on? You know, where's this material coming from and how intensive is your process? And I think it, you know, it's all those sorts of actions that uplift, you know, these very, very complicated, um, you know, value chains um, that go into some of these sectors. So they're, you know, like anything, like there's no one silver bullet answer um you know but it, i think it's really important to be asking the questions and i want to switch gears for a while and talk about climate risks and reporting so last year you released i think it was your first standalone tcfd report we did yes physical risks have you identified physical risks so our two largest physical risks are from extreme heat um and from extreme wet. So Sims is a business that, as I mentioned earlier, does a lot of marine shipping. Um, and so many of our facilities are on the port and we can load, you know, directly from our processing facility um, onto a vessel. And that's great from an emissions perspective because we're minimising transport, um, but it does obviously have a whole other set of risks in terms of sea level rise and uh, storm surges, um, and everything that kind of comes with 
having a coastal operation. So that's certainly one physical risk that um, we are really cognizant of. And as I said, heat is the other one. And, you know, in fact, when we're recording this, um, you know, there's a big heat wave going on um, in the US. So, you know, we're seeing that, um, you know, already play out and kind of looking at what is it, you know, that we need to do, you know, how do we have our environments respond so that people have more shade, they have water available, they have shift breaks, et cetera. Um, because, you know, it's it's a, you know, it, I think heat's, um, you know, such an ever-present sort of factor, um, you know, and I, being in Sydney, I think we've all sweltered through a heat wave or two, right? And you kind of go to work and you're hot and then you come home and you're hot. <laughs> it's really, um, you know, it can be really tough to escape. Um, and so, you know, you certainly don't want to come to work um, and be like, oh, you know, gosh, this is awful. So how do we make it, um, you know, as comfortable as possible for people, um, but also in a way that doesn't put them um, at other risks, right? So they'll still have to wear PPE, for instance, you know, when they're on our site because we still have to have people wear gloves to protect their hands and, you know, wear PPE to protect their skin and wear helmets and things to protect themselves when they're on our site. So, you know, we're, we're looking at how do we integrate, you know, these physical risks into, you know, all the other um, controls for the risks that we have. Um, how do we integrate, you know, knowledge and predictions about what these various futures might look like into decisions that we make about um, our premises and, you know, where we want to expand. Because um, Sims is absolutely, you know, really growth-oriented. You know, we see that demand. So how do we factor these sorts of, um, you know, predictions and risks in um, to an integrated approach? Fascinating. And what about transition risks and opportunities? So I think, you know, there, there certainly are... Um, you know, risks in the same way that every business is exposed to transition risk. And certainly, you know, in in some sectors, you know, there's probably greater risk, I think, of a disorderly transition. And, you know, we see, you know, at the moment, you know, huge spikes around gas pricing, for instance, you know, as a result of other factors and risks do compound and cascade and that's what they do. Um, no risk occurs in isolation. Um, and so, you know, when we see that or, you know, maybe when different regulations are not applied evenly, for instance, you know, that very much would represent a transition risk to SIMS. Um, but I think the opportunity for SIMS, you know, as I've mentioned before, is just um, really, really encouraging um, because we are supplying an input to what is otherwise a very hard to decarbonise sector, which is steel, um, which is a material that's going to be you know, really an increasing demand as, you know, is needed for, um, you know, new low emissions infrastructure, as well as just infrastructure growth and society is continuing to urbanise and go high and then that means steel. Um, so I think the opportunities for SIMS and for our circular business model as society moves more towards decarbonisation, um, more towards an understanding of you know, embodied emissions and the role that the circular economy plays in addressing that, um, I think are just absolutely tremendous, Barbara, and it's just such an exciting business to be a part of at such a time as this. You're such a purpose and values-driven business, so I wonder how 
your staff feels that permeate through the way they work, through the culture? How does sustainability align with the values of your staff? I think it's, and that's been, you know, one of the wonderful things. I've only been at SIMS, you know, quite a short amount of time, a bit less than a year. Um, but to see people actually, um, you know, they do very much reflect that value, you know, they see it. And so it's, <clears throat> it's an interesting shift, you know, I think for the business to go through where they've, um, you know, historically kind of thought about themselves as like recyclers. Um, and, and obviously that's a great outcome for the planet because we're recycling. Um, and so to be able to, you know, shift that um, into a space where we talk about, you know, emissions intensity, so it's not just recycling, it's about, you know, carbon emissions and all the other things that go along with that, is maybe not a harder a shift <laughs> as, as it might be in, in other places um, because people are so connected to that value of doing good for the environment. Um, and, you know, of course they are, right? They see that every day. They see waste coming in the door and they see a high-quality product that we've sold um, going out. So um, it's been really fantastic to see how how close people are, you know, at every level, um, you know, from the yard, you know, right up to the top to see how close people actually are to their values and how um, you actually do see that reflected in in decision making um, and you know so as, for instance we just refreshed our materiality um, earlier on in the year and as, as part of that we did give our staff an opportunity to make comment and we surveyed them and yeah it was great they were all like GHGs GHGs what do we you know <laughs> like more actions I was like oh fantastic you know um, yeah and so there's a lot of excitement um, in the business as well about doing that you know and so there's a lot of um, you know, I mentioned before that I think SIMS is very open-minded and, you know, that's really true because it's, you know, it's very much viewed as, you know, that opportunity, a really interesting problem to be solved. You know, it's not viewed as, oh, more work. You know, it's viewed as, you know, something that all the, you know, very smart people at SIMS um, can put their minds to and, and accomplish together. So it's very, very exciting. What are the next steps that SIMS is considering in terms of your amazing sustainability journey? Ooh, so the big thing, I think, or one of the really big things that we're looking forward to um, this year is that um, we'll be producing our first climate report um, and we'll be giving that to our shareholders in the form of an advisory vote. So, you know, building on that TCFD report that we talked about, building on the decarbonisation plan that we have in place and really put that all together, you know, in a, in a cohesive way for the first time. And I'm quite excited about that opportunity and the, the opportunity then to talk with, you know, obviously not just our shareholders, but with all our stakeholders up and down the value chain um, about SIM's impact on climate. So, you know, all of the, everything from, you know, the work that we do through to, you know, the avoided emissions, you know, that, that are realised by society through our processes and, and products. And to do that in a way that's obviously quite transparent because um, it's not all, you know, easy. We're not just going to flick a switch and have everything be electric, you know. <laughs> we, you know, so we'll be quite transparent about, um, you know, the challenges that we have um, and the opportunities that we have also. So, you know, that will be... Um, towards the end of 2023. I'm super excited about that. 
Um, you know, we talked about SRR and, you know, the, the future of our really exciting um, business that's new to Australia and that'll be operational quite soon. And I'm just, you know, as a as an Australian person, I'm also super excited that we're bringing this technology into Australia, you know, like that it's, um, you know, that it's happening here and um, that we'll be able to demonstrate that. Um, you know, so I think there's just really... Yeah, there's so much going on um, at Sims, but those are just two of the things that I'm really excited about in the near future. After everything that we've heard today and the amazing things that Sims is undertaking, what's the key takeaway message you want to leave our listeners with? Look, so I, I want to leave them with a the message. You know, I think Sims has been around in Australia for 100 years, 104 years. Yeah, and now we're a global circular economy business, you know, delivering solutions worldwide that solve worldwide problems, you know, and setting up a low-carbon sustainable economy for the next 100 years. So how can people connect with you if they want to find out more? Well, I would absolutely encourage them to do that. So please um, reach out to me on LinkedIn. So Blaise Porter, you can find me there. Um, or if you want to reach out directly, I'm at blaze.porter at simsmm.com. Thank you so much for giving up your valuable time for this interview, Blaze. Oh, no, I've really um, enjoyed the opportunity to be here with you today, Barbara, and I'm looking forward to hearing from your listeners as well. That was Blaze Porter, Group Director Sustainability and Corporate Responsibility at Sims Limited, talking about how they enable a circular economy and a journey towards net zero emissions. If you know another person who you think would enjoy this podcast, please let them know so that more people can hear about best practice stories of how organizations are moving to net zero emissions. Remember, to reach net zero emissions, aim high, always be curious and act now. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next episode. As always, you can find more information in the show notes of this podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please rate and review it on your favorite platform. Thanks for listening and we look forward to having you on our next show.